Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Michael Brody Waite. I first saw him on TEDx. His speech on TEDx is incredibly moving, it's breathtaking, and definitely worth a watch. He's a recovering addict. He is a three times CEO, he's an author and a speaker. Michael, welcome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience your backstory? Because it is certainly unusual for a lot of the people who'll be listening, but I think it's exceptionally telling because obviously your story and your philosophy are closely intertwined. Sure. So uh, I had a pretty normal childhood living in California. I now live in Nashville, Tennessee. And at the age of 23, uh, I'd been kicked out of college. I'd been fired from my job. I'd been kicked out of my house. My car had been repossessed. I was throwing up blood. My doctor said my liver enzymes were through the roof. And it was because I was hopelessly addicted to alcohol and drugs. They became my sole obsession, my job, my passion, my everything. And from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night, all I did was obsess over how do I get the money to buy drugs? And then how do I use them as much as possible? And then wake up and do it all again. And I pretty much believed that I would be dead by the age of 25, at worst, the age of 30, and I'd given up on life. And so, you know, when I introduce myself that way, it's always awkward because then I go on to say that I think that the leaders of this world should run their organizations like drug addicts. <laughs> and it's because a lot of people are familiar with that story. Unfortunately, they have someone in their life that's done that. But you know what? I know a thing or two about leadership. Uh, my clean date is September 1st, 2002. And in the last 18 years, I spent eight years climbing the corporate ladder at a Fortune 50 company. I left that company in 2010 to found a startup that became an Inc. 500, a fastest growing startup, sold that company to a publicly traded company. I've been a leader of a nonprofit that helped 2,000 entrepreneurs a year start or grow a business. Uh, I gave a TED Talk. I'm a three-time CEO. And I wrote a book called Great Leaders of Like Drug Addicts. And so in my experience, in my leadership journey, what I've learned is that a lot of the behaviors that drug addicts use to get drugs and to stay high are very similar to what leaders think they have to do to be successful. But what I am proving and showing and teaching is that if you use the principles that addicts use to recover, you can learn to lead in a fundamentally different way. Before we get into that detail, I would like to explore one area, which is self-concept. And I'd like to juxtapose what it was like being an addict and how you perceived yourself yeah. and then how your self-concept shifted when you decided to uh, get clean. Would you mind talking about that? So I love that question because it takes me back 18 years to when I was in rehab and they gave me, um, it's really interesting in the context of a pandemic, but they gave me two paper masks and they gave me a bunch of magazines and they said, cut out images and words and put them on one mask and make that the mask that you try to show the world who you want them to see you as, and then do another one that represents who you think you really are. And the difference between the two was incredible, right? Like I had, you know, these great looking dudes that are in great shape and money and cars and like all these great things on the mask that I showed the world. And then when I stood back and looked at the mask that I created for how I felt about myself, it couldn't be more opposite. You know, I've always, well, prior to getting clean, I'd always felt really uncomfortable in my own skin, feeling like I wasn't enough, not knowing how to deal with life in life's terms. I feel like when people 
handed out the instructions on how to deal with your emotions and how to deal with life, like I was skipped. So I just felt terrible about myself. And, and, it, and it's crazy because, you know, they call a drug addict somebody that, had, that, that is an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. <laughs> and, and, and those, that's, you want to talk juxtaposition. And so that's what those two masks really represented for me. And that's how I felt about myself. Jumping forward to 2020, how has your self-concept shifted? I would be lying if I said that I don't sometimes still feel like I'm not enough. Imposter syndrome or insecurity are, are, is very real. But I think that I had no idea what I was getting into when I got clean. They gave me a 12-step program and I thought that I had to work in it. I thought it was like homework. And what I learned was it is the greatest behavior modification system in the history of the world. And so for me, the way that I feel about myself today is I am proud of who I am. You know, one of the hardest things in active addiction would be getting up in the, in the morning. And it's not that I didn't like who I saw in the mirror. I literally wouldn't look. I was that scared to see myself. And I remember distinctly a moment right before I got clean where I actually saw myself in the mirror and I didn't know who that person was. And I didn't like that person. When I went to bed, I couldn't sleep. And so I remember when I got clean, I was like, I just want to like the guy in the mirror and I want to be able to fall asleep. Well, my first sponsor told me when you get clean, he said, write down all the things you want out of life. And I promise you that if you stay clean five years, you will realize that you have severely shorted yourself. And for me, I am so proud of who I've become. At the same time, there are parts of me that I'm embarrassed by and insecure about. But I'm, I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a good leader. I'm a good son. I'm a good friend. And I F up in all of those areas on a regular basis. But what <laughs> makes me proud of who I am is my ability to practice rigorous authenticity, serenity outcome, and do uncomfortable work when I find my growth edge and learn how to grow through it. I don't need to be perfect to like myself. I just have to have confidence that I'm not going to stay effed up in certain areas. And it's all started with overcoming addiction ever since then. It's been, it's been an incredible journey. And what's the difference in terms of your internal dialogue, in terms of how you speak to yourself in your head? The first thing is, is that I'm aware that I have an internal dialogue. When I was thinking, I want drugs, I want drugs, I suck, I suck, I suck, I thought that that was me. And it took a while to understand that those are thought processes that aren't necessarily reflective of what I want out of life. And so the first thing is recognizing that there's an internal dialogue that is going to represent the full spectrum of my personality. And it's going to include my fears and angers and all that stuff. And it's going to include the good parts too. And then just in general, I lived in so much fear, dude. Whether I was scared that I wasn't going to get high or when I got clean, I was scared I was going to relapse. Or when I got the job at, the, at Dell, I was scared I'm going to get fired. When I founded the company, scared I'm going to burn it to the ground. When I sold it and started running the nonprofit, scared that they would wish they hadn't hired me. When I did the TED Talk, scared that I would fail. Doing TED Talk and flip-flops was not something that people were proud of. Um, <laughs> writing the book, scared that it would suck. Having kids, scared I wouldn't be a good father. I've lived in so much fear. And one thing that I've noticed is recovery has taught me how to surrender my fear. I don't stop feeling it, but they don't really teach leaders how to surrender. Like anyone listening right now, you got to ask yourself a really like hard question. Do you actually know how to master surrender? And we are taught the opposite. 
in business and in our personal lives. Why are you checking CNN.com every day to see about what's going on in the pandemic or an election? And you can't fucking control it. Surrender that, right? You're worried about what's going on with a friend or what's going on with a coworker or someone you manage. There's elements that we control, but there's so much that we can't and we, we lose so much energy. And, and the fear is what drives us obsessing over the things that we can't you know, surrender. And so recovery, the first thing they told me was, you're gonna have to get a PhD in surrender. And I didn't like that, but it was the difference between me living and dying. And so I like that no matter how much fear I have today, I know that peace and the ability to do the next right thing is one moment where I surrender away. It's really interesting because I think what you're effectively touching on here as well is your relationship with forgiveness. And I'm curious about how learning to forgive yourself, even though you can't, you can't forget what happened, but learning to forgive both yourself and then seek forgiveness from others, because I suspect that's a major part of the 12 steps. How did that yeah. play a part? So I, I first learned how to forgive others before I learned how to forgive myself. How we treat others is how we treat ourselves, but it's easier to amend how we treat others first because it's external and it's, and it's perceptible. And so the beautiful thing is like the 12 steps, like I could do a whole thing on it, but every step is built for a reason. And so steps eight and nine are where we make a list of of people that we had harmed. And then step, you know, that's step eight and step nine is where we make amends. And, you know, as a drug addict, I had a lot of amends to make. And one of the things that was really powerful was understanding that there's a difference between saying, I'm sorry and making an amends. I'm sorry was something that I did as a drug addict over and over again, and then I do the same shit. What I was taught was you can't make amends until you change who you are. And then you want to make it right. And so for me, what, and, and I know you're asking about forgiveness, and this is actually about me like owning my part, but what I learned was the hardest part about doing amends was making amends to people that I had grievances against. Making amends to people that I thought had also hurt me had also harmed me. And I remember like saying, I can't, I'm, I'm not going to go make amends to that person. F them. They screwed me over. And so again, being taught how to surrender, which later became a professional superpower, but like being taught how to surrender, one of the things I was taught was only focus on your side of the street. Only do your part. Surrender their part. And so I learned how to do that. And so then like, as I continued to work recovery, one of the things I learned about resentments was a resentment against someone else is like um, taking poison and hoping that they die. Mark Twain said, uh, anger is the acid that edges the vessel that contains it. And we have a tendency to hang on. And in Buddhism, they talk about attachment being the root to all misery. And more often than not, it's that attachment to how people have aggrieved us. Uh, or our sense of entitlement. You know, all, all of these things make for a very ugly character. And it, it's really fascinating, incredibly courageous to be able to not only realize your part in that, but to then make amends in the way you describe. I know that I f- certainly find it very difficult and feeling slightly awkward here because I, I, uh, I recognize that how difficult that is because that attachment has been my downfall so often. My attachment to the outcome, my attachment to being perceived in a particular way and feeling aggrieved at perceived or real slights. 
And that's so hard to let go. My, one of my mentors, Mark Galston, taught me a lovely uh, line, which is let go or be dragged. And that's certainly been a, a fabulous lesson. And one, one other lesson one. is a Buddhist mantra for happiness. There's a fabulous exercise I've always taught my clients since I learned it. And you take um, an index card, divide it up into uh, seven columns for the days of the week. And every time you moan, grumble, complain, whine, bitch, or judge, you have to tally. And the Buddhist mantra for happiness is never complain about anything, even to myself. And that means even in thought. And mm. raising your awareness level of when you have that attachment is incredibly powerful because it allows you to recognize before you go down that nasty subroutine that you can change your behavior and that becomes a choice. Otherwise, it becomes a reaction and that uh, appeals to your lower base of self. One thing like what we're talking about here is you asked me about forgiveness with myself and I started talking about resentments and amends with other people, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that so much of that practice is what allows, has allowed me to get to forgiveness quicker with other people because I only focus on my part. And when I recognize that my resentments against people that, that had wronged me were, were things I needed to set aside to make my amends to them, it taught me a level of grace and the ability to surrender what other people need to do. In fact, I'm, I'm going through something right now in my personal life that you know I'm, I'm having to practice this really hardcore where I just have to forgive but as I practice that and I build that muscle, quite literally like lifting a weight and building a bicep, I'm more co capable of doing that for myself. And like, like you asked about the forgiveness for me based off of you know who I was, my forgiveness for who I was has become so great that I now tell people that the best thing that ever happened to me was becoming a drug addict. Huh. Like I see that and, and, and people are like, yeah, you know, you really love your recovery. And I'm like, like, no, no, no. When I thank my higher power in the morning for things, I thank my higher power for my addiction before I ever start talking to it about my recovery. Because I don't have my recovery without it. But see, here's the thing that addiction gives me that it doesn't give most of the people in this world. It gives me two things. Number one, it gives me incentive. I walk around with a gun pointed at my head that basically says, if I don't practice the principles that I was taught in a 12-step program in my personal and professional life, I will fucking die. That's the level of incentive that most people don't have. Number two, because everybody's impacted by addiction, I can go to any meeting in the world for free, 12-step meeting, and for the price of one hour of my time and a shitty cup of coffee, I can be around a bunch of people that are practicing these principles, like I'm going to a training camp with a professional athlete. And most people don't have a training ground where everybody is practicing these principles, practicing surrender, like it's a freaking job. And they're not, and, and especially most people don't have that with a bunch of people where their incentive is they're going to die if they don't. And they're doing it with that level of urgency. And as a result, I've got 10,000 hours practicing something that most people don't. And so the best part of me came out of my addiction. Wow. Fascinating that, you know, how powerful a gift that was. I mean, you, you wrote a, a book, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addict. Tell us a little bit about the principles in that, because I think many of us could learn a great deal from this. So if I set the context for it, you know, when I was in, in active addiction, there were four, four things I did on a regular basis. I would first thing is I would say yes when I could say no. 
So I was always saying yes to using and to things that were bad at me when I could have said no. Number two, I hid my weaknesses. So I hid the fact that I was an addict and that I needed help. And that, that stopped me from getting help, of course. The third thing is I avoided difficult conversations. Any conversation that could lead to me getting real with somebody was something that I tried to avoid because it was simply too uncomfortable. And then number four, I held back my unique perspective. Pouring all this poison into my body robbed my unique, my unique perspective from shining through into the world, like whatever that is, right? I think everybody's given their own unique perspective. And so I was addicted to those four behaviors to get high. And so when I entered the business world, I observed that most leaders have their own addiction to these four behaviors. So they say yes to things that they could say no to. 90% of leaders are doing these four behaviors on a regular basis and it's costing them 500 hours a year. So let's count it up. They say yes when they could say no. 31 hours a month are spent in unnecessary meetings. And that's before I start talking about email, to-do lists, and other types of bullshit. (laughs) Number two, hiding a weakness. Most leaders think that they have to hide their weaknesses to be respected. But I once spent 22 hours trying to figure out how to use Microsoft Excel when I could have spent 10 minutes being uncomfortable asking for help. I wasted a tremendous amount of that company's time. I don't think that's leading yourself. Okay. So leaders are addicted to hiding their weaknesses. Leaders are addicted to avoiding difficult conversations. Yeah. You know, people think about the one person that's willing to say the hard things in the deal. But if you really look at everything, 70% of employees right now are actively avoiding a conversation with their boss, a coworker, or a direct report. Wow. 70%. That's before you start talking about customers, before you start talking about investors, vendors, partners, friends, family, what, the internet, whatever. That's a and then terrifying the fourth, statistic. It is a terrifying, like, and, and I will tell you that I work with a lot of different companies. Avoiding difficult conversations is the number one that they, that I work on with them because there's reasons it actually ties to all of these behaviors. The fourth one, holding back your unique perspective. Holding back your unique perspective is when you're scared that because the boss's boss is in the room or the customer's in the room, you're not going to point out a blind spot or point out an opportunity to improve. And then entire strategies go unvetted by the full perspective of a company because everybody's listening to the CEO and the, and the executives and they're not listening to the executive assistant that actually may be able to relate to the customer and point out a freaking hole in the plan. And so every time an employee holds back their unique perspective, on average, it costs an organization $7,500. So if you have one meeting where you have three junior employees that hold back their unique perspective, that's 22500 in US dollars that you're gonna that's gonna cost you, and that's just one meeting. And so leaders are doing these four things all the time. And so what I learned is basically they're being inauthentic. And so we talk about authenticity as a buzzword. I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown and anyone else talking about authenticity. But what I found in building my company is everybody was talking about authenticity, selective authenticity, curated authenticity. Okay, nobody was talking about rigorous authenticity. And rigorous authenticity is what I had to learn to stay clean. Let me tell you the difference. Selective authenticity is anyone can talk about that time they kept it real in front of grandma. Okay, that's, that's like a real situation. Anyone in a job interview, you can talk about, hey, I'm going to share this one vulnerable moment. Rigorous authenticity is when I walked into my first job interview and I had one prospect and they asked me what I've been doing in the last three or four years and I told them that I was a drug addict. Like that's rigorous authenticity. And so a lot of people know about authenticity, but the reason that we don't have authentic brands, companies, we don't have politicians answering questions with, I don't know, is because we don't have rigorous authenticity. Absolutely. So that's the first principle in my book, practice rigorous authenticity. The second principle is surrender the outcome, which we've already talked about, because when you surrender what people will think, 
suddenly you can say no, you can share your weakness, you can have the difficult conversation, and you can share your unique perspective. And if you have an entire company that's good at surrendering the outcome, everybody's saying no, everybody's sharing their weaknesses so they can grow, everybody's having a difficult conversation, everybody's sharing their unique perspective. And, and when they do that, that's my third principle, uncomfortable work. When you actually speak up in the meeting, when you actually share your weakness, it is not smart work or hard work. Those are physical and intellectual. It's uncomfortable work. It's emotional. And we're not taught how to do that. And so with these three principles, practice rigorous authenticity, identifying which of these four behaviors you're doing, surrender the outcome, reclaim energy by letting go of what you're scared of, and then doing uncomfortable work, doing the stuff that most people aren't doing because they're emotionally scared or uncomfortable physically, you can gain a competitive advantage. And that's why I think that recovering addicts are the number one talent that people should be hiring their businesses today. Now, this then raises another really fascinating uh, question because I think a lot of people see vulnerability as a weakness. I absolutely yep. see it as the opposite. If you, if you look at the Latin root of the word vulnerable, it comes from the word vulnerabilis, which means to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. It's a sign of courage. A Roman legionary would rip off their armor and go into battle. Uh, crazy, but an act of courage. The second thing is that if you're going to do this in as a leader, that takes incredible courage to be the first person to be vulnerable. And a, a rule that I've learned over my 35 years in business is that if you want someone else to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. Yes. And that's where you own your 50. You own your 50% of it, then you have to surrender to the outcome. They accept you or they don't, they judge you or they don't, but you live with those consequences and you do it knowing that it might not work out well for you. But that allows you to maintain that authenticity internally. And I think that what that is, is building that authenticity muscle. And uh, the more you practice it, the more that suit fits you. I don't think it's ever comfortable because uh, I, I've always found in sales, leading with your vulnerabilities. In fact, I interviewed Tom, uh, Todd Capone yesterday, and uh, he wrote a book called The Transparency Sale. And it's all about leading with being rigorously honest about the failings of your proposition. Don't be afraid of it. Don't hide from it. If you're going to yep. fight, fight up front. And if, they, if it's going to take you seven months to get to the point where you think that maybe by building all this other value, the one thing that they want um, is going to be forgiven if you don't have it, find out about it in the first two minutes of the conversation. These are fabulous principles and not coming from uh, where your uh, perspective, but recognizing that knowing when to say no is such a crucial, that is a superpower. What you say no to matters more than what you say yes to. It frees up an inordinate amount of time. Hiding your weaknesses is crazy. The actual best management practice is hire people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. So surround yourself with people who wipe out those weaknesses. I didn't know that it was that high, but 70% of employees avoiding difficult conversations, crazy. What a waste. Crazy. Great. And then holding back your unique perspective. And this touches on this issue of inclusivity and managing inclusively. The older and slightly wiser that I get, the more I realize how important it is to ensure that people feel that it is safe to have a voice and to listen. Because 
Our customers tell us how to improve our products and our services. Our employees tell us how to improve our operation, our leadership and our management. They speak to customers and we don't listen. So I think one of the most important things I'm drawing from this conversation is that you actually have to listen, not just hear and not wait for the gaps so that you can fill the silence with the sound of your own idiotic voice. But you actually have to have the humility to listen and welcome those lessons. And that takes real courage. Yeah. You know, one of the experiences I had early on was when I when we started uh, the company in Quicker, we were the first company in healthcare to, in the US to allow patients to digitally self-schedule appointments online. At the time, 99% of healthcare appointments were made over the phone. We thought that was crazy. I could be... A Boeing 737 could send me a text message letting me know it's running late, but a doctor couldn't. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so... You know, we started this company in the middle of a recession, you know, with no investors, no connections, nothing. We just maxed out our credit cards, drained our bank accounts, withdrew from our 401ks. And I tell a story like, which was the hardest story with a customer in my book and in my TED talk. But one one story I I didn't share because there just wasn't room. Early on, I mean, we had no resources, but we started to just experience hyper growth. And we ended up on a national television show. And I just remember the level level of exposure. We were a controversial product in healthcare at the time, which is crazy, but we were. And I remember that level of exposure could crush us if we didn't manage it correctly. And I remember thinking, I know that I'm the CEO of this company, but like I just have that title and an email signature. I'm like a little kid in a suit. I have no idea how to be a CEO. <laughs> I mean, I literally have no idea. I just have a business card that says it. And so I went to a 12-step meeting. And what one of my friends said was, you're just another dude in recovery. And I was like, oh, okay, so what do I do as a recovering addict? Because I don't know what to do with all this exposure. And I'm listening in the meeting and I'm like, how the hell did I get eight years clean? How to do this when most people die or don't? I was like, oh, I got a sponsor. And so I realized that I needed mentorship because I didn't know how to be successful in my role, but I didn't know where to go to find one. And so a thought occurred to me that was like a terrifying thought. I had five employees. And my thought was, go to them, tell them I have no idea how to be a CEO and that I need help finding a mentor so that I don't drown all of us by wrecking this ship. Everything in my being, everything I was taught in my, in my corporate career, everything I was taught through seeing other people's examples, what people said, said, no matter what, don't do that because they won't trust you. They'll see you for the fraud that you are, like all these things. But my recovery kicked in it was like muscle memory. And I went to them and I told them and they helped me find a mentor. And that helped me scale myself as a CEO. But more importantly, what it did was it gave them all the freedom to scale themselves because then they were free to volunteer where they were held back. And nobody was wasting all this time and energy trying to take a trending line going from down to up. Instead, they were willing to say, I have no idea how to do this job. And when you're a growing startup that's doing the first thing in an industry that's ever been done, it's all a freaking growth edge. So we shouldn't be wearing any sort of a mask. Like we're kidding ourselves if we've been here before. And, and what I find in general is, and you know, I've worked with like big companies like Google and Dell and, and global payments and nonprofits and startups is what most leaders don't understand is our 
our time where you had to pretend that you had all the answers, there was a time where that made sense. Command and control leadership made sense in on a battlefield or in, in an industrial economy, in a manufacturing-based economy. That could make sense in situations. But in the last 25 years, we have shifted two trends at the same time. Number one, we've gone from being hyper-connected to the people that are close to us physically to not connected to people at all, but being connected to everybody digitally. So connection is at an all-time low. Genuine connection is at an all-time low. And at the same time, in the last 25 years, we've gone from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. In a service economy, whether it's through software or the delivery of human-based service, your relationship is the key. Your empathy and ability to acknowledge the other person's humanity is the key. And so suddenly connection is 10 times more important in a world where connection is a 10th of what it was. And so we have these very dated paradigms of what great leadership looks like. Command and control might've made sense on the battlefield, although what you said about vulnerability makes me question that. It might've made sense, but now everybody wants a human to lead them because connection with humans is what is delivering the majority of the freaking value. And when you as, a cust- as, as an employee, if you put on a mask and you're dealing with a customer and they know that you're hiding your true self, they don't fucking trust you to solve their problem. It's that simple. And everybody is a human. They all have their problems. So if you can acknowledge them, like you said, in those first two minutes, they're actually more likely to trust you because they know that you're not going to bullshit them. And suddenly there's an opportunity for real connection. And that's a real competitive advantage. Uh, Absolutely. And that whole piece about being vulnerable and being authentic, upfront, honest, is critical. And in fact, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing Mark Twain incorrectly, but it goes something along the lines of always tell the truth. It confounds your enemies and surprises your friends. And there is no room for lying. There is no room for artifice and there is no room for masks. I know in your book, you talk about the four masks. Talk to me about what those are and why they are important. I started trying to basically say, man, people need to be rigorously authentic. And that was the game changer for me and my companies and leading in in corporate America. And so when I started trying to teach it, I found that authenticity is a buzzy thing. Um, It's very intangible. It's very ambiguous. It's hard to identify when it's happening or not. So I was taken back to that time when I was in treatment and they gave me the two masks. And I was like, oh, that was really clear. Okay, I'm wearing a mask or I'm not wearing a mask. Like figuratively, of course, I wear a mask in the pandemic, but I'm talking about the figurative mask. And so when I started doing my research, I started looking for what the masks were that people wore in the leadership world. And I started with 50 and I built an assessment and I assessed 2000 leaders and it all came down to those four behaviors. So what in in the program that I teach, the mask-free program, very interesting time to launch that in the middle of a pandemic. In the mastery program, I teach that those four behaviors that we've talked about are masks. The mask of saying yes when you could say no, the mask of hiding a weakness, the mask of avoiding a difficult conversation, the mask of holding back your unique perspective. And what we teach people uh, to do is to take those three principles I talked about, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. And we give them a step-by-step system that is essentially like a 12-step program for leadership that teaches them how to take those masks off. And in our system, they do two hours of work once a month and they do one minute a day and that's it. And as a result, they save on average 10 hours a week 
because they say no to the meetings, they share their weakness and they don't spin out. They have the difficult conversations so they don't waste a ton of energy and they share their unique perspectives to projects that shouldn't launch don't and projects that should launch do. And it's amazing. Like, and I'll give you a practical example. I worked this program myself. Um, and so the mask I was focusing on was holding back my unique perspective. I sell speaking engagements and workshops and coaching for companies and all that kind of stuff. And what I found was because this is such a personal thing that I'm teaching and based off of my personal story, I wanted to discount my price because I was so scared of like saying that I think it's worth X. And so what I realized was I was holding back my unique perspective that I thought that if I teach a company... So I do this thing called the mask rehab. So I use all the drug addict things. So a speaking engagement is a mask intervention. A workshop, a one-day workshop is a mask rehab. And so when I'm pitching this mask rehab, I believe, I truly believe and know it will be game-changing for an entire company. At the same time, I'm scared to charge what other people less than what other people charge for stuff that I think is less valuable. And so I, I worked my system. I identified the outcomes that I needed to surrender. I identified what my uncomfortable work was. And part of my uncomfortable work was to collect four moments where I price my, where I quote my product to the point where it gives me butterflies in my stomach. That was my goal. And so when I, and I have a mask-free sponsor and I mask-free sponsor other people. And at the end of the month, when I did my review with my mask-free sponsor, there were five quotes that I did that in aggregate were $32,000 higher than they would have been if I had held back my unique perspective. Wow. And we've already had three, like three or two of those closed, one a verbal. So like, let's just say half of that in one month, I almost just gave away $16,000 simply out of fear. And, and I think a lot of times when we're talking about all this stuff, people can kind of get overwhelmed and be like, this is all philosophy. The mask-free system makes it very practical, actionable, and brief the same way the 12-step program did for me. If a heroin addict can stop shooting heroin, you can stop saying yes. You can stop hiding your weakness. You can stop avoiding difficult conversations and you can stop holding back a unique perspective. You just have to use a system that addicts have used for years. Well, I, I think any VP of sales or sales manager should be paying really bloody close attention at this point because uh, money concept for salespeople is such a handicap. And yep. it, it, it's crippling. There are so many people who have a weak money concept. And when they come to talk about money, their palms go sweaty, their voice <laughs> starts to crack, um, yep. they start to stammer. And th this is just brilliant. Um, I, I mean, a, a way of turning this into yet another product, I suggest, is that you do a whole workshop around dealing with money concept. And you focus it just on sales organizations because companies leave an obscene amount of money on the table. They discount prematurely. They discount needlessly. They give away free consultancy. They give away terms and conditions that they don't need to. They waste time on non-prospects who will not pay their fee. They spend time on conversations with people where they dance around the handbag rather than just come out with their price. They see their price as being some, or talking about money as somehow grubby. It's not. The problem is that so many people have a really bad relationship with money. And so much of that goes back to childhood. In the same way that Brene Brown talks about 
perfectionism being a, a byproduct of childhood shaming, then more often than not, money concept is rooted in the belief system that you inherited from your parents around money. Money is the root to all evil. It's not. It's the love of money. The man with the gold makes the rules is a terrible belief system. The man with the, uh, with the gold is generally the idiot with the problem. And <laughs> you happen to have the solution to help them make that problem go away forever. Why would you choose to undersell it? Why would you choose to undercharge for it? Because yeah. all that means is you have to work a damn sight harder prospecting. And I know one thing for sure. Most salespeople would rather not have to prospect more. <laughs> and if you charge a lot, you have to get in fewer customers, which means that you need fewer prospects in the pipeline. And it also means uh, that you can love your customers to death. So you maximize their experience and you ensure that you focus your attention on ensuring they get the outcome that they wanted. No one, you do no one a favor if you undercut yourself on price. Uh, in fact, you do them a monstrous disservice. So there's an entire line of business there for you, which I, I would be amazed if you could not find. Basically, all you'd have to do is spit and find a sales team that needs help <laughs> with the money concept. Dude, I really appreciate that because, like, I think sometimes you know, one thing I've, I've learned, and that's what I appreciate I appreciate about sponsorship and mentorship and coaching is, no matter what you know, you can't see everything because you have blind spots. In addict in terms, we say you can't spot self-deception. Mm -hmm. And so um, <laughs> that's a level of focus and application that like, so I just did a one day rehab with a company. They identified that the mask of saying yes, when they could say no, but they have about 125 employees. And they identified that that mask costs them about $5 million a year. Wow. And, and just, just in, in doing three things and, and spending, uh, in not spending two extra hours uh, managing their people saying yes to vendor meetings that, that suck, that are a waste of their time instead of selling. So their sales team says yes to these vendor meetings. And then, especially with what you just said, saying yes to unprofitable projects. And one of the things that they identified in the rehab was if they said yes to, I forgot what it was, like let's say a $500,000 project that was unprofitable, to make up the margin that they lost, they needed to go sell like another 2 million. Yeah. Something like that. And I don't remember exactly how the math worked, but I just remember thinking sales of all of the, the functions in a company, we wear masks the most when we're the most scared of getting kicked out of a tribe. And we're pretty tribeless people these days. So we're kind of scared of getting kicked out of any tribe. Like we're, we're as scared of getting kicked out of our family as we are the Facebook group about running. And so <laughs> salespeople have to have one foot in the tribe of their company and one foot in the tribe of their customer. And every customer is their own tribe. And so that so their existential subconscious fear about being rejected is really significant. And, and then and then you so with the customer, they're scared of upsetting the customer. And then with the people at the company, they're scared of not managing expectations or whatever. And I never really thought about just like explicitly focusing on sales. Cause like I teach sales also. It's not my this is my core thing, but everything you said is totally correct. And every organization needs sales to be successful. Why don't I just make a one-day mask rehab specifically for salespeople? I love that idea. Well, let, let's put this into context. If you make 30% margin and you discount by 10%, the next sale you make, 
you have to increase your revenue by 50% to make up the difference. Now, the example that you just cited, 125 employees, 5 million it was costing them. You've just added $40,000 per annum per employee. Yep. Now, let me ask, again, you don't have to give me the number, but as a percentage of that 5 million, did your fee even come close to representing the value? <laughs> no, dude. My one-day mastery has 15 grand, like, and I'm scared to charge it. <laughs> okay, so let, let's do the math on that. So 15,000. So what you're saying is I should charge 5 million. No, I'm saying a great way I'm to kidding. handle this. You charged one three-thousandth of a percent, okay, of the return. So that's a pretty damn good ROI. Now, let me ask you this. If you were to be able to run through the pain by numbers and you were able to come to that conclusion with the prospect and you were to say to them, okay, so you're going to save 5 million. What percentage of that would you consider to be a fair compensation, 10, 15, 20%? Even if they went for the 10%, it's yeah. a shitload of cash. It is. Which I think means you, you don't know, have to work anywhere near as hard. Well, when I, so... No, I feel like I'm in the, the therapist chair, but I like it. Um, the Because uh, actually, so here's the thing that I teach people that I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that people don't do. Um, here's what I learned in recovery. Telling my sponsor the things I'm doing great didn't make me not die. It was when I told my sponsor the things that weren't going well that made me not die. And so like we have this joke of like, we're not saying we don't celebrate wins, but we're like, what is my sponsor telling me I'm awesome that something can get me? Like, how does that help me? You got to point out where I'm going to kill myself. You got to point out where I'm failing. And so what we learn is to yearn for people to essentially provide the missing pieces to help us grow. But so many people out of ego or fear are scared to do that. So like in this example, I'm sitting here and I'm like, man, like, dude, I'm supposed to be a thought leader on what I'm doing. But like, dude, you're spitting some real truth. And this is really helpful. So I'm just going to go ahead and hop in the seat. And like, let's do this. So, so let me tell you, one of the fears I have with the, with the one day workshop is to me, Wearing these masks as humans and as organizations, it is an addiction. And that's why it's not stopping. We've misdiagnosed the problem. We think you should just stop. And that's the same way as saying an addict should just stop. Well, I knew I should stop. I couldn't. Addicts don't stop doing what they're doing until you give them something to start instead. And so I got a 12-step program. And so I think that, and I believe in what I've observed in, in all this coaching is people don't recover from the masks. My wife, when I met her, I had 12 years clean. She's like, why do you still go to meetings? I was like, because I don't want to relapse. She's like, I thought you recovered. I'm like, no, I will never recover. I'm recovering. And every day I get to make a decision that helps me be a recovering Michael. So I believe that companies and individuals need to continuously work this program one minute a day, two hours a month in order to keep those masks off because there are so many forces that are driving our addiction to putting them on. So I know that in order for them to realize that benefit, that $5 million benefit, and it's good for me from a business perspective, but at the same time, I'm scared to even say it. They're going to need to live this program. They're going to need more work integrating it into their culture. And I, in effect, need to become the sponsor for that company. Absolutely. And then, and then train sponsors that can then sponsor other people within the company. And that's going to have a greater expense. It's not going to be $500,000, but... Yeah. 
Um, so let, let me ask you this. When you sell reinforcement programs as part of your package beyond the one-day workshop, what kind of conversations uh, result from that? I'm still figuring out how to productize and package those. I know how to deliver them, but how I sell them is still something I am A-B testing. But basically what, what I do is I say, okay, so let's after this, let's do a three-month program where I will sponsor your leaders and teach them all four masks and get them really comfortable with the system. Then, so that's the next phase. And then, and then at the end of that phase, you have an option to essentially deploy a train-the-trainer model where I continue to sponsor the people that we initially sponsored, but I give them the tools and teach them how to start sponsoring others within the organization. And so like in a 12-step program, my sponsor has a sponsor who has a sponsor. My sponsees have sponsees. And so we can always go up the entire you know, flagpole if we have an issue. And so in this example, I sponsor the core people that started. They sponsor others within the organization. And so over the course of a year, I continue to sponsor those individuals. And so it ends up being an annual fee for you know me on a monthly basis meeting with them and 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 re- and creating a new mass free action card is what we call it and that would be that so you know the way i charge the way it, it all ends up being you know around 15 grand so like the the one day rehabs 15 grand the three month programs 15 grand and then the annual sponsorships 15 grand a year which is probably now that i hear that saying that and i'm looking at your face i'm like that's too low <laughs> but it's because i'm insecure i'm insecure i, I i'm i they don't want a model where they needed to be dependent. They want a model where it's one and done, but that's not what recovery is. It, well, it never is. And it's the same thing with training. That's why training doesn't work. Uh, feeding people from the fire hose and then expecting them to change a lifetime of shitty behaviors and bad habits and terrible beliefs <laughs> uh, is not going to make any difference. So uh, again, we can have a conversation about this offline, but um, yeah. uh, I, I think it's really fascinating uh, given how courageous and how much change you've gone through, uh, that uh, something as uh, actually re- relatively insignificant as money and having a money conversation puts you into this state of semi-panic. I can sense from your re- reaction uh, that you are get you you're, you're getting the uh, the jitters, you know, thinking about having the conversation about a big six-figure number, but it's cheap. I mean, uh, if you got a hundred grand out of them, it would still be a massive payback, and almost nothing that they invest their money in uh, gives them an ROI coming even close to that. That would be a fifty-fold return, a five thousand percent ROI. I mean, yep. who the hell would not spend money if you knew you were going to get a five thousand percent ROI? So this is why I purposely modeled my program to have the people that teach not be teachers, trainers, or coaches. They're sponsors because in 12-step programs, sponsors are not experts. They're literally someone with the same affliction. They're just sharing their experience working it. One of the things my sponsor told me early on, he said, I have what you need. I don't have what I need. And that was really helpful. And so while I sit here and teach people how to use the mass-free program to be able to charge... I myself am struggling to charge for the mass-free program, which is like a mind F. And so I think I have more work to do with my mastery sponsor on leaning into my unique perspective and having the confidence because you just illustrated as a business guy, I'm like, you're absolutely correct. When I set my training business up, I set myself two goals. 
one is never fail in front of the group. And the other was put myself in a situation where failure was inevitable. And my business model was go out and find people who are screwed up just like I was so that I would get paid to fix both of us. And it worked. <laughs> and, and it, it, it was a really healthy model. And I strongly urge anybody, if you're in that kind of line of work, then go out and intrinsic, in, instinctively go out and find people who suffer the same affliction that you do because you know exactly what it's like. So when you're talking to them about their pain, it's raw, it's real, it's authentic. And it makes you a much better salesperson because you can tell people, look, I, I've suffered from this. I've suffered from this my entire working life. And I struggle with money. And I'm going to teach you how to deal with it, but you're never going to be over it. The reality is this is something that will be with you forever. In the same way that an addict never is uh, uh, overcomes their addiction, they're always in recovery. Man, dude, I thought I was coming on here to do a podcast, but you just gave me some real, like, really actionable, like, valuable perspective, man. I appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, I mean, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, because I've got to be honest with you. I don't think I've been this inspired for years. Um, the, oh, man. This is just a, a phenomenal philosophy. And just those four masks and understanding, distilling it down so eloquently, that's worth the price of admission. So, Michael, tell me this. We've come to the top of the hour, which I'm disappointed by because it's gone by so quickly. <laughs> um, I would love to have you back if you'd be up for it. Yeah, dude, totally. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to go execute what you told me, and then I can come back and tell you about it. I, well, I'd, I would love to hear, and please do stay in touch on that. Tell me this, what are you struggling with at the moment in your life or in business? And again, you don't have to give anything away that you don't want to, but I'm curious. What, no, what man, I'm about about rigorous authenticity. So uh, really like a big hot button for me is selling the mastery program. So not just like the, the, the pricing, also going to friends. So I have a large business network, like anyone that's been successful in business. And I am scared to go sell the program to them, even though I know that it can help them. And I'm not like, you know, a sleazy salesperson or whatever, but like I'm struggling to confidently advocate for this with people I know because I don't want them to think that I'm trying to trade on our personal relationship. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, uh, I don't want to eat my, I don't want to eat my own dog food. Like I would tell other people, okay, this is what you do. Deploy, sit, like come up with what your value proposition, like all that kind of stuff. And then if you really believe it'll help them, like be confident in it. But when push comes to shove, there is, there is a serious friction point for me in going to my friends because I know that some of them don't value authenticity. Some of them are like, oh, Brody Wade's doing some recovery thing. This isn't real leadership. Other people are totally inspired and down, but it's it's a it's a challenge. May I make a suggestion? You just made several really great ones, so I don't see why you should stop your streak. Okay, well, generally, uh, the gratuitous advice is worth the price you paid for it. So um, okay. <laughs> let me ask you this. Do you do your friends a disservice or a service by not taking them this stuff when you know that they need it? I do them a disservice. I know that intellectually. Okay. In your gut, do you know it? that you do them a disservice? In my gut, I'm scared that I'm an imposter and I've convinced myself that this is real. Okay. Do you have evidence to demonstrate that this stuff works in the real world with real companies, with real people in uh, real business situations? Yes. Okay. 
So why not just tell people, Bob, got to be honest with you, I'm shitting a brick. I've got something that I want to sell to you because I know it could be good for you. But my fear is that you're going to think that I'm trading on our relationship. So let me just be absolutely upfront. If you don't want to take this any further, we will still be friends if you tell me no, and I really won't be offended or upset. Would you be okay if I told you in 30 seconds precisely what it is that I want to talk to you about? And then you can tell me to go and boil my head, or we can talk for two more minutes to see whether or not it makes sense to bring it into your company. That's great. I know that um, Brooke on my team, who's helped build this thing, she would be like, that's what you would tell someone to do. I'm like, yeah, I know, but like, I don't have what I need. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) always tell people the truth. It never does you any harm. And the problem with not telling people the truth, particularly about how you feel, is that you get reflected back what you project out. And if you're turning up and you're trying to make a pitch and you're doing it for the wrong intent, and this is about service, it's not about self-serving and it's not about servitude. It's about the service to others. This is a higher calling. What you are doing is important and meaningful work. It's transformational. It's transformational at an individual level, at a team level, at a company level, at a group level. And you do no one any service by holding this back. Now, if they choose not to do it, who cares? That's their choice. But then you have, you've made the effort and you've given the, them the choice. And there, there's no harm. There's no, no one dies if they say no to you. But just right. tell them up front what your fear is. Always lead with your glass chin. I, I always Dude. used to tell my, uh, my sales uh, training clients, just tell people that you're shit at selling and this is going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah? Now, I, I can do that now because I'm no longer in sales training. So this is really cool. Look, Michael, tell me this. What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should pay attention to because it's really powerful stuff? Oh, man. So I've done a lot of reading in the last eight years and a lot of listening. So the book that I read recently that made the strongest impact on me was a book, I don't know if you heard, called Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Right. And I've heard of David Goggins, but not Can't Hurt Me. Yeah. So David Goggins kind of got famous because he worked with Jesse Itzler, but he had a really tough story and he wrote this book and it's about his childhood and, and him being one of the first people to do uh, ranger training and SEAL training and, and all these challenges that he went through. And the truth is, is that I've, I've read a lot of inspirational stories. What I loved about his book was how authentic he was and, and how he wrote about his experience. And then even more, when I check out his Instagram, the guy literally gives no fucks. He does not care, man. He like so he's got a video on like that the problem is is that he's like it's what I call the chestnut problem, and he goes on to describe how you ha- your nuts go up into your chest, and you like the guy just like does not care. He's got millions of followers, and he's like sitting there on this raggedy ass couch, being like, "All right, I know you motherfuckers want to talk, so like, what do you got?" And he's not like trying to be rough. He's not trying to be like pretend he doesn't care. It's just obvious that he's just being himself. And so I've, I've read a lot of inspirational stories, but just seeing how authentic 
I perceive him to be in the process has been really, really inspiring. And for me, being an author and a speaker, there have been moments where I've been inauthentic trying to teach authenticity because I thought I had to act a certain way or look a certain way. I didn't even realize it. And I don't value that, but he was, he's just been a really valuable true North for me. And like, I got to honor my unique perspective. Like for a period of time, I didn't used to call it mask addiction um, because I was scared that people would challenge me on that, even though it's what I believed. And I'm like, man, I got to lean into my unique perspective. And so he was, he's been really inspirational in that way. Excellent. Well, let me give you a book back in return that I think you'll enjoy. It's called Talking to Crazy by Mark Goulston. And it's I've heard of that. Mark Goulston wrote my favorite business book ever. And it's not really a business book, but it's required reading for every one of my clients and every one of my team. It's called Just Listen. And it's learning how to... Yes, I read Just Listen. That was a powerful, powerful fucking book. Absolutely. Well, Mark's one of my mentors. In fact, he was the second person that I interviewed for this podcast a couple of years ago. And he's been life-changing for me. But Talking to Crazy is largely about talking the internal dialogue and mastering that and coming to terms with the fact that you are just a fucked up sick puppy and then learning how to then have that conversation with other people. So I think given what we've talked about, that will be a great one to start with. I appreciate that, man. Tell, well, if, if you're talking, just tell him that I'm sure he gets this a lot, but one dude, I thought his book was one of the most practical, insightful, actionable books that I had ever read up until the point that I came across it. Okay. Do you want to come on a podcast with him? <laughs> that would be, a, yes, that would be a dream. Excellent. Okay. I will get that set up because I think the two of you have something quite special. Uh, Mark, his mission in life is to eliminate teenage suicide and all his commercial work is to fund that mission in life. And he is one of the most genuine, kindest, most lovely human beings you'll ever meet. But he is just fantastic. I would love that, dude. Uh, That would be an honor. I will make that my mission this week. Okay. I know this is a slightly tough question given what we've already discussed, but you've got a golden ticket and you could go back and advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What bit of advice would you give young Michael, age 23, that you know he would have ignored? I think that the honest answer is I would have like put a hand on his knee, looked into his eyes and said, I know that it feels like you're at the bottom of the abyss right now and that your life is over. But I promise you that if you just do some uncomfortable work and you surrender, your life will be better than you ever could have dreamed. And you just need to hold on. I know he listened if that happens. Wow. I got a little tear welling up. Okay, right. We're, I think we're done. So tell me, how can we? How can people get hold of you? My website's michaelbrodyweight.com, boy R-O-D-Y. W-A-I-T-E. You can also Google Michael Brody hyphen weight because the first 25 years of my life, I got my ass kicked because I had a hyphenated last name. <laughs> but now it's the I'm the only Brody weight in the world other than my wife. So Google SEO picks me up and you can find my book and find uh, my coaching program and all that kind of stuff just by, uh, just by searching for me. Excellent. Michael Brody weight. thank you so much. Dude, thank you. This was, uh, this was amazing. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. 
I cannot believe that you will not have gained something useful from this. So please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Definitely get in touch with Michael and get him in and have him kick the ass of your sales team because God knows they need it. And if you want to get in touch with me, then either do that through LinkedIn or email me at marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.